In their seminal book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman and sustainable business guru Andrew Winston explode 50 years of corporate dogma. They reveal, for the first time, key lessons from Unilever and other pioneering companies around the world about how you can profit by fixing the world's problems instead of creating them. To thrive today and tomorrow, they argue, companies must become net positive, giving more to the world than they take. Hello, and welcome to Episode 4 of the Just and Sustainable Economy Podcast. I'm Isaac Graves. Today, we are joined by Paul Pullman, who will be interviewed by former CEO and co-founder of 7th Generation and current CEO of the American Sustainable Business Network, Jeffrey Hollander, in dialogue on what net positive really means and what businesses are being called to do in these times. Jeffrey, take it away. I'm very, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today with Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever for the past decade and a very special person in my life as helpfully as he led the purchase of the company I started, Seventh Generation, back in 1988. And I couldn't be more excited to be part of the Unilever family today. And that brings us to a discussion that we're going to have with Mr. Pullman about his incredible book, which everyone should be reading. It is called Net Positive. He wrote it with Andrew Winston. And we're going to chat about that book today. And I'm sure when you hear this conversation, you will rush out to your local bookstore and buy a copy. So, Paul, let me start by by asking you, uh, you know, you've been working on this issue of sustainability for over a decade. What's changed during that time? Well, let me first uh, thank you, uh, Jeffrey, for uh, not only what you did and what you are doing with uh, Seventh Generation, but also the incredible leading leading work that is uh, happening uh, in the U.S. with the um, uh, uh, coalitions that you are forming and and uh, what you represent. You know, I think you have 250,000 companies now being part of the American Sustainable Business Council. And that's an enormous uh, force for good, if you want to, an enormous multiplier. And coming back to seventh generation, I don't think it was acquired by Unilever. I always like to think of, we merged together and took the best of both companies. Uh, When you had the vision to think seven generations ahead, you were also ahead of what Unilever was doing then. And you've been extremely successful. And as the company has shown, has accelerated the growth in the last uh, few years. And I think that's one of the re- things that has changed, that people have started to realize even more so now than at any time in the history that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And when it comes to some of these planetary boundaries, uh, especially climate change, we're hitting these uh, these barriers and business is the first one to notice that. And uh, increasingly you see business understanding that if they want to be around for the longer term, then they need to have a um, longer term multi-stakeholder model with uh, putting sustainability at the core of their operations, at the heart of their strategies. And increasingly we can see that companies that do that are more successful than the companies that single-mindedly still pursue the myoptic focus of quarterly reporting or shareholder primacy. And the good thing is now that uh, unlike even 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we now have overwhelming data that point out that companies that put purpose at the core, that operate under this longer term uh, models, putting sustainability at the core are also 
in general outperforming their uh, peer group. So that makes it attractive. And not surprisingly, Jeffrey, because we're at a point that, uh, as COVID has shown, where the cost of not acting is significantly higher than the cost of acting. So the good thing is that the smart companies are starting to understand that this probably is the biggest opportunity that we have in a century. And what has changed is from an initial risk mitigation uh, point of view, or perhaps uh, scoring a few marketing points, it has gone mainstream because of the opportunities that it offers. And then the second thing that comes with it, not surprisingly, is partnerships. We see that the responsible or front-running businesses are increasingly willing to form these broader partnerships within their own um, value chain or at industry level or even at broader society to drive these, uh, 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 to challenge the business models, to make more things pre-competitive and to move these boundaries uh, to ensure that we can continue to have successful businesses. In the book, you introduce this new concept called net positive. How is net positive different than what we've been used to focusing on in the world of sustainability? Well, you know, at best, the reality is I used to chair the International Chamber of Commerce and it has 48 million companies and we finally got climate change on the agenda. But frankly, it was very difficult and uh, you get more or less the lowest common denominator, which we know is not enough. Most companies in the world still try to struggle to be even on the right side of the law, but increasingly companies were moving to what they call CSR, and that's still the prevailing model, corporate social responsibility, dealing with less bad. I never personally understood that. It's like saying I killed 10 people, now I'm only killing five people, I'm a better murderer. And increasingly companies understand that that isn't enough. So they said, okay, we have to be sustainable, but sustainable is neither good nor bad. It's, it's a very admirable position to be in. But when we already overshoot all these planetary boundaries, the only model that exists really is um, p uh, models that, that think uh, restorative, reparative, regenerative. And this is what we call net positive in all its senses, not just on climate, but also on all the other uh, elements that you get within your business model, including our social contract with society, uh, contract with the planet, contract with future generations. And increasingly, you see the leading companies understanding that. Microsoft making commitments to uh, compensate for carbon emissions since 1975, de facto becoming carbon positive. Walmart making commitments to go to regenerative uh, agriculture, protecting forests, restoring um, uh, or protecting oceans. Um, we see uh, big companies making commitments to step up the training for their employees so that they're more agile in a fast-changing society. All signs of companies starting to think of net positive. Uh, what we now need to do is, and this is where the book helps a little bit, is to ensure that companies um, get a little bit of uh, help from uh, best practices out there, our own experience with Unilever and other companies on how to implement. The why is now fairly well understood. July 29th this year was World Overshoot Day, which is the day that we use up more resources than the world can replenish. Every day after that, we're actually stealing from future generations. So this regenerative concept is coming in. It goes well beyond circular economy, but the issue is the why. And the book basically, very briefly, talks about the first thing is a human transformation in terms of uh, 
uh, uh, really asking yourself the question, how do you profit from solving the world's problems, not creating the world's problems? Is this world better off because your company is in it? And the first thing you have to do is really, it starts with your own leadership. You cannot have a company transformation if you don't have a leadership transformation. And you cannot have a systems transformation if you don't have a company transformation. And the first step for a net positive company, therefore, therefore is to take responsibility of your total impact in the world, intended or not. Um, we see great companies uh, advocating and advertising their enormous benefit on providing energy to people or connecting them over the technological platform, but refusing to take the unintended consequences of, of uh, carbon emission or um, hate uh, speech or undermining democracy on these platforms. And that just doesn't work anymore. You can't outsource your value chain and also outsource your responsibilities. It just doesn't. A net positive company also tries to optimize the return of all of their stakeholders. They understand very well that if you want to be around for the longer term, you have to optimize the return of uh, all people that make your company successful. Your employees, your partners in the value chain, the customers you serve, your communities, but also future generations and the planet. And then not surprisingly, these companies um, see the shareholder return as a result of what they do, not as a myoptic objective. I think we're having more and more evidence that this Milton Friedman on steroid approach, as I call it, is really not very conducive, nor for companies, nor for the economy at large. And the final symptom of a net positive company is that they actually work in partnership to, to, to uh, push these broader transformations that we now need in society to make it more sustainable, more equitable, if you want to. So we struggle as businesses to be sustainable. How hard is it to be net positive? What are some of the key challenges that businesses are likely to face as they make this very important transition? Well, it's not easy to do. And uh, as I said, many companies struggle with that. And the book takes us through that step by step, chapter by chapter on how companies can implement that by asking the right questions and forming the right alliances. But the first thing, obviously, is to personally internalize that, figure out what your purpose is, work with your organization and your key people to ensure that they all uh, buy into this. You can't have a sustainable company without sustainable people. You can't have a purpose-driven company without the people itself being purposeful. And then it's a, a matter of deciding where are you going to make the difference, measure your total impact in society, across all the variables and start to work uh, on uh, announcing these commitments publicly, I would say, with clearly measurable targets. The more you do that publicly, you will see that if you set these targets that are really needed versus the ones you can get away with, it will build trust uh, because of that transparency that you're giving. And that trust allows you then to develop these further partnerships in your value chain with all the the key uh, players or in the broader industry or sometimes in the wider society. And these are the normal steps, if you want to call it, of any change management process. But it's hard to do because in this case, we need to set targets that we don't know how to really achieve yet. Uh, sometimes they're outside of our control. Uh, we need to take responsibility of things that are not directly um, 
uh, within our business model, but the consequence of our business model. We need to work with other people, which sometimes is uncomfortable for the CEOs when they're not in charge alone. So all these things make it difficult. And then you have the competitive pressures and then these beliefs that are still there, right or wrongfully so. I, I tend to believe personally, increasingly wrongly so, that you cannot have purpose and profit or you cannot drive sustainability and, and be competitive. All these myths need to be busted because increasingly, I think we are starting to show that in general, it's the opposite. When we think about net positive businesses, you've mentioned Microsoft, you mentioned Walmart, of course, I would mention Unilever. Who are some of the other companies that are leading the way that can help provide a model for businesses that want to grow in this direction? Well, we see an enormous amount of companies stepping up, uh, Jeffrey. For example, you now have 20% of the major companies making uh, commitments to reduce climate change in line with the Paris Agreement. In fact, I'm about to go to Glasgow and, and there you will see that the private sector probably in general is running ahead and pushing governments to be more ambitious. We're a little bit in a situation where global governance isn't quite functioning, where uh, nationalism or, or xenophobia or populism has, has crept back at, at the local level. And frankly, governments are a little bit stuck. Their combined commitments, for example, for the next 10 years on on carbon reduction is a 16% increase when we all know we need a 45% decline. The way that they work together to keep the vaccines for COVID only in the developed markets, 70% of people vaccinated, whilst the developing markets, about 4% of people vaccinated. That's not the solidarity we need to attack these issues that don't know borders. We cannot solve them in structures within borders. We have to work together. And this is where many of the responsible businesses are stepping up. I think you see many making efforts to uh, certainly since uh, COVID uh, stepping up efforts in the areas of the E, the environmental side, especially around climate, but also in circularity, uh, regenerative agriculture, all of the major companies are really seeing that as, as, as major growth opportunities, but also to position their companies very well for this new uh, future that we want. Um, but what we need is more consistency. Uh, you cannot cherry pick. Uh, the book talks about that. For example, these same companies in the US now that have made tremendous commitments to reduce their own emissions or sometimes the emissions in their value chain are also letting their trade associations lobby on the reconciliation bill and trying to undermine that because it is associated with reversing the tax uh, decreases from the previous administration. So if you really are serious, um, you have to work on it or in all these elements. And there are a few companies really that are at that level. Um, we are putting, dedicating a chapter in the book on what we call the elephants in the room, dealing with tax payments, money in politics, trade associations, corruption, human rights. And these are the tougher challenges for most companies. And getting it holistically right still is a uh, effort that requires uh, more work from, from most companies, if I may be uh, polite here. You mentioned earlier the importance of partnerships. Companies aren't always great at collaboration, particularly with NGOs. What types of partnerships do you think are critical to bring this type of change about? Well, ultimately, we need uh, to change the systems. The reason that we 
are dealing with many of these issues of planetary boundaries is that uh, we still have incentive systems that are driven the wrong way. If we only measure the return on financial capital and, and continue to disregard the social and environmental capital, we will never value it. And we discharge these negative externalities to the environment. So the major changes that are needed, for example, are the establishment of a broader accounting standards, the Sustainable Standard Board, the European Taxonomy, some of the areas that the SEC is now getting interested in. Before COVID, we had five countries implementing the uh, recommendations of the Task Force of Financial Disclosure for Climate-Related Risk, the so-called TCFD. Now we have 47 countries putting that into legislation. So increasingly, governments are starting to look at ways to pull these, ex these negative externalities back and, and make business responsible for solving them. But that would be one of the major changes. Another change that we need to drive is moving the financial markets to the longer term uh, in this uh, enormous uh, pressure of short-termism. It's difficult to address these structural longer-term issues. And again, in some parts of the world, we see more happening there than in others. But it's increasingly in the interest of the financial community to that uh, they have uh, long-term returns on their investments often needed to match the pension obligations. And then the final changes that we need is really in government policy. Uh, we have uh, in the areas of climate change, for example, of agriculture, there are uh, in each of them five to six hundred billion of perforce subsidies that pull us in the, right, in the wrong direction. So if we want to tackle these bigger challenges together, uh, at the time frame that we have available to us, it requires that absolute focus and cooperation across all uh, parties. We've shown that we can do that with the development of COVID, where governments really made that development possible, where we saw unthinkable partnerships in the pharmaceutical sector, where civil society rose to the challenge and local communities took over, where governments failed, frankly, and we were able to come to grips or at least get under control to a certain extent, this incredible challenge that really was the result, by the way, of us destroying modern nature. This is, uh, I always point out to people that COVID should not have been a surprise. We've, we've had SARS, Zika, Ebola, Asian flu, all in the last 10 years, because we're destroying the planetary boundaries and have to deal with these zoonotic diseases. Um, but we've seen at least that we're able to rally to the challenge. And when things are that urgent, and important that we can do miracles in a relatively short period of time. And that gives me confidence that we can do the same around the other burning issues of climate change and inequality, for example. Well, that's a optimistic uh, outlook, which, which we all need. When you think about these challenges, climate change, uh, you know, COVID-19, and all the other challenges that the planet and its citizens face. Anything else makes you optimistic about the future and business's role in tackling these challenges? Well, Jeffrey, when people ask me, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I always like to quote Desmond Tutu, who I had the favor or uh, the pleasure of being on the panel with him in the UN a few years ago. And he answered that question with, uh, very simply, I'm a prisoner of hope. And I think you need that hope. Uh, you don't change people with fear. You can get people behind you with hope. And I think we have all reasons to. We always underestimate the speed with which technology 
is developing. And we're seeing that also in the green technology areas. We're creating more jobs already. The energy is significantly cheaper. We just need to accelerate the investments for, uh, for obsoleting the fossil fuel a little bit faster than we currently do. So technology gives me hope. Uh, the young give me hope. There's no question that the millennials or Generation C are more purpose-driven. Uh, they're really the change agents now. Uh, many of the movements they've started are really catching, uh, uh, catching on. Uh, within companies, they are becoming focal advocates, not afraid to walk out or walk away from these companies. The biggest uh, challenge for most of the CEOs is we ask them is to attract and retain talent. And I can tell you the best way to attract and retain talent is to have a responsible business model. That's what they're looking for. So it gives me hope the young people. And then what we talked about, the cost of action and inaction, Jeffrey, for even the people that believe in maximizing shareholder return as the only objective in life. I don't subscribe to that personally, but if you are in that camp, it automatically has to lead you to the most likely best way of doing that is to running a more sustainable, more um, uh, responsible business model that takes these negative externalities into account. We are now seeing that by sector, if we compare industries within sectors, we can now see very clearly for the first time that industries that are actively trying to eliminate these negative externalities actually are also higher valued by the market, which is contrary to what people think. They think if they can discharge all these costs, they should be having higher profits. No. The financial market is already understanding the materiality of this and is starting to factor it in. Which brings me to my third, uh, my fourth uh, hope, which is that we now have the financial market moving. They've rapidly changed from seeing this as a risk mitigation to an opportunity. Now going into Glasgow, we have over $100 trillion of money that is committed to being net zero in 2050 and increasingly are starting to put plans behind that. So having the financial market starting to move is probably the uh, ultimate sign that we might be close to a tipping point. And it's very clear that uh, the companies that understand this, that position themselves better for the future, uh, have a higher chance of doing well. And the companies that continue to deny that, I think we will see them at an increasingly higher frequency at the graveyard of dinosaurs. Well, everyone, that's a small taste of what you'll read about in this incredible book. It really is a roadmap and a game plan for the future of business and the role that business needs to play in helping to address the incredible challenges we're facing today. It's hopeful. It's optimistic. It's instructive. I encourage you all to check it out. And Paul, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We're lucky to have you, and uh, we need more of you. Uh, maybe you can figure out after you finish the book how to replicate yourself at a, at a couple dozen more companies because we need this type of leadership. We need this type of vision, and you and your role in the world help make me optimistic about our future. So thank you so much for being with us today. No, likewise, and thanks uh, for all you guys are doing. I know it's an uh, important moment in the history, so keep uh, setting the bar high, but above all, be safe as well. Thanks for the opportunity. Our pleasure. We're lucky to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Paul Pullman, former CEO of Unilever and co-author of Net Positive, alongside ASBN CEO Jeffrey Hollander. 
Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And a special thank you to Paul for joining us for Episode 4 of the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. Don't forget to purchase a copy of Net Positive wherever you buy books. And don't forget to subscribe to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. And if you're ready to help transform the public and private sectors toward a just and sustainable economy, visit us at asbnetwork.org and consider joining the movement. I'm Isaac Graves. Thanks for listening.